Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions. Each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, the Black Radical Tradition, features veteran activist and poet Amina Baraka. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in New Jersey. She is interviewed by both Norman Mogadishu Coward and Edwion Easy Stokes. So um, tell me who you are and talk to me about the work that you're doing now. Okay, right now I'm Amina Baraka. Um, of course, you know by now, my, our oldest son, not oldest, second oldest son, Raz Baraka is the mayor of Newark. So what I've been trying to do since his father's death, which he did not live to see his son take the inauguration for the mayor, is try to live a life in between being the wife of and the mother of and trying to continue some of the work that uh, he and I was doing and try to maintain some integrity in the era of Trump. And I've been working with various organizations, with political prisoners, with um, community organizations, uh, civil rights organizations, anything that is going to change this country to a place where everyone can live, black, Latin, Asian, and white, in peace and with justice. That's a lot of work. So I have not been consistent in it, but I have had really good people around me, and they have uh, made sure that I stayed on track, and they made sure that I got where I was supposed to go. And the people have been very, very kind. Very, very kind, particularly people in the movement. Now, I can't say nothing about the rest of them. Okay. How did you, uh, how did you get involved in the movement? Um, talk about, uh, specifically, there was a, a Black National Power Conference in 1967. If you sort of remember, can you talk about the importance of it and sort of the conditions that sort of got you involved? Well, <clears throat> well the real world is that uh, I was involved in politics before I met uh, Leroy Jones, because at the time I was Sylvia and he was Roy. And um, we had a group here in Newark. It was mainly musicians and uh, poets, painters. Well, it was an art artist group. And this was prior to him coming to Newark, and it was called the Newark Jazz Art Society. And we kind of took that uh, from Alone Bay Brath and them, who was up there in Harlem, who had the African Jazz Art Society, because we went up there to see, uh, uh, when I say we, I mean the people in the Jazz Art Society. I should name them. It was a brother named Art Williams, who was a bass player, uh, who was always organizing or, and trying to do music in Newark. And we had a loft, and we used to call it the, um, the loft. Then there was some politics that took place, and then it became the cellar. But let's go back. Um, 
The Loft was created by Art Williams, a bass player. Uh, what was the brother's name? The piano player, uh, who was a um, postal worker, I believe, if I can think about it. Um, Bill Harris. And then there was a drummer uh, who actually became Eddie Gladden, who became the drummer for, um, you know, the saxophone player. Uh, God, he, he's, he's the only one that really got out of that and became renowned. Uh, they, and matter of fact, I think they're all dead with the exception of uh, Bill Harris, because I haven't had contact with these people for many years. But Eddie became Dexter Gordon's, Dexter Gordon's uh, drummer. And they were uh, the brother that introduced me to Leroy Jones, um, Ben Carwell. I have a lot of his artwork here because he also used to be at the Jazz Art Society on 22 Shipman Street. There's a woman named Barbara Kukler who documented all of this in a book on Newark Jazz. So I'm glad she did that. And uh, he used to come there because uh, he lived up the street on 33 Sterling Street, which no longer exists, interesting enough. But he would come down there and I auditioned for the play of his called Black Mass. And it was the story of Yaku coming from the Nation of Islam, you know, Yaku. And um, we met during rehearsals and we talked a lot and did, and Yusef Iman, a lot of people he brought from uh, Brooklyn when he came from New York, back to Newark in 65. And he brought uh, a lot of uh, artists with him. And we were at the Spirit House and we were uh, rehearsed at the Loft, which was our place at the time. In the time that that took place, the Loft split up because as usual, there are ideological differences. Some of us were more, more interested in art than we was interested in politics. So there, there came the cellar. And I remember very clearly um, the artist from Washington, D.C., uh, Gaston Neal. He did a show down there. He was a poet. He's also gone. But there was at a sunrise concert. And uh, people used to tease me about how Roy and I kept looking at each other and he was looking at me and uh, I was married. So I said, oh, this can't be happening. <laughs> but of course it did. <laughs> of course it did. And I left my first marriage and uh, moved in uh, with uh, Roy Jones. And from there on, we kept doing poetry with most of the artists is from uh, Brooklyn and um, the artists from Newark, who he had known as a child, but he had left Newark and hadn't come back until 65. I had never left Newark. And so I knew all these people and we had to reintroduce ourselves and uh, they did the play uh, Dutchman, uh, written by him, and another play called Old Man Mose is Dead. Uh, by a guy named Joe White, who was a childhood friend of his, and interesting enough, a friend of mine. So we found out we knew each other and we were different people. We didn't know we knew these people together until we came together. But it wasn't until 1967 
when the breakout of the rebellion, because, you know, coming from New York and having been in the beat generation and dealing with uh, people like that and then moving up to Harlem, and when he and uh, Larry Neal was doing Black Fire, that was the time I began to know all of these other poets because I became his assistant. And I had to write the letters. He told me what I had to say, and we sent out letters to continue. Uh, so when Black Fire was produced, we were together. And I ran into many, many poets. Prior to that, actually, uh, Larry Neal uh, was getting married, and I knew this poet, uh, Yusef Iman, who was at that time named uh, Ronald Stone. He was a teacher at Arts High School, which is the high school I went to. And uh, Ronald used to come by the house because I had a huge collection of jazz records. I didn't have many books, but I had a lot of music and a lot of visual arts. And um, he was with another woman at the time. We don't want to discuss that. <laughs> and she, they broke up. She left. Then I left my husband. Then we got together. Then there was another woman involved because we was involved in the Yoruba culture. And the Yoruba culture, you know, they believed in polygamy. And uh, we tried it. We tried it. It wasn't working. The woman was already pregnant. She was very, very young, younger than he and I. And uh, I decided that I had to get out of their way. I was gone one day and got a phone call. And he and I were discussing the separation and we were told she had been taken to the hospital where she died, and the baby died. Of course, I felt guilty. I can't tell you what he felt. But I kept thinking to myself, perhaps if we hadn't tried this, but she was the one who introduced him to the Yoruba culture. So I kind of, we went back together. We went back together. And we stayed, and the funeral took place, and. I think, I, I know I was confused, I can't speak for him, but I also felt very guilty, but I cared a lot about his ideas and what he was thinking about doing and what I wanted to do. So we stayed together. And then, after her funeral, uh, we moved to San Francisco. Uh, that was when they started the, um, first black studies program at uh, San Francisco State, Jimmy Garrett and Sonia Sanchez. That was the first time I met her. And uh, we talked, and I was kind of naive because I'm a little younger than them. And um, when we got to San Francisco, uh, we started working in this place called the Black House. And there was Ed Bullins, Marvin X, um, Eldridge Cleaver was living there then. I can't remember the woman he was with at that point. Uh, and interesting enough, and this is interesting because what happens later on, the Black Panther Party was part of the security for him when he was coming there reading at, in poetry. We didn't live at the Black House. We had another apartment, but <clears throat> all the performances, Marianne Wadi, uh, a lot of poets who I later on become, became to know that were quite important to the life of our people in literature. And then when the Panthers and the US organization 
because that's he was also at that time he left me in San Francisco and he went to California to meet uh, Maulana Ron Karinga. And when he came back, he was all excited about how the organization was organized and the discipline of the organization and so forth. But in the meantime, somebody had, uh, the police had broken in and had arrested Ed Bowens and um, Marvin X and everyone. And I called him because one thing I can say about the two of us, when there, whenever there was anything going on and one of us was in trouble, we would definitely call. And he came back immediately and had to bail them out of jail because they had arrested Ed. And this was the, the, the this growing dispute that was going to become between the artists and the Panthers. And I remember <clears throat> sitting across the table from little Bobby Hutton. And uh, people were, you know, the poets was reading and so on. And uh, Bobby said, uh, what are they going to do when the revolution come, kill them with a poem? <laughs> and so, of course, I'm eight months pregnant, almost eight and a half, because I was pregnant with our first son. And somebody hunched them and said, man, that's Brother Leroy's wife, even though we weren't married at the time. And didn't, it didn't stop him. He kept on, you know, talking about the, the, uh, the contradiction between us thinking we can make a cultural revolution without dealing with the factor of uh, what was absolutely the police state. And I told Roy when he came back, and we were discussing that, then uh, we came back to Newark and the 67 rebellion, oh, I had had the baby, I left. I left him in San Francisco and came back to Newark because I wanted my child born in Newark. And he put me on the plane. I was home, I don't know how long, honestly. But I went into labor and I tried to call him and I couldn't get him, so I called a taxi. And I took myself to what was called Martland Medical Center. And I have to tell you that because that is part of why this rebellion took place. There was uh, problems here in Newark with education, healthcare, housing, and then there was a, another organization called Welfare Rights Movement here. And uh, they were hooked up with uh, Beulah Saunders and I can't remember the brother's name who started the Welfare Rights Organization in New York there. And uh, many, many women on welfare here in Newark. And so we started working with them. Then there was Junius Williams, Phil Hutchison, and um, uh, what's the... Uh, God, I can't think of his name. Um, I, mean, I mean, you know him. Who uh, was in Newark here and was organizing SDS? I can't. God, he's going to kill me. But he was also very active. And see, the nationalist movement, and this is what I want people to be clear on, most of us at that time was just coming into understanding black nationalism in that sense. But then SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, had already started organizing in Newark. And then there was um, a separation between the nationalists and the uh, student organization. God, I don't think of his name as I talk. And um, the nationalists, we kind of 
was upset about the fact that they had moved in here. There was a student organization uh, that they seemed to have more connection to the working class community than we did because we were basically artists, tell you the truth. And because I'm jumping back and forth, uh, Tom Hayden, that's who was here, Tom Hayden. And there was a lot of discussion between how can these white people come in this neighborhood and do this and do that. And um, some of us, you know, were opposed to them coming, but we had not dealt with those questions of health care, education, and the question of power. Adonisio was the mayor at that time. We would deal with it, but we would deal with it in a poem, where, like Bobby Hutton said, what, what you gonna do with a poem. But after the rebellion, it, be, it changed our whole viewpoint on what we had to do. Even though we were opposing, uh, there, there were a lot of people who were here in Newark that was dealing, because they were politicians, they were dealing with the working class, the Paynes, for instance, uh, Donald Payne, uh, his brother, Bill Payne, and now his son, who is the, uh, John, uh, Donald's son, is a, a congressman. But we were more concerned with art, and that wasn't anything wrong with that. But we refused to deal with the political question of how art and politics came together, but we had no choice after 1967. I wanted to ask you uh, sort of about art and politics. Uh, to you, what is the uh, black radical tradition? And uh, if you could speak on it from your perspective as a spoken word artist and just as an artist overall. Well, I think we were forced in a way to have to deal with the fact that, uh, I'll tell you who was dealing with it before we were dealing with it, it was Motown. Because I remember Mitty writing a poem called Let No uh, Love Poems Be Written Until Love Can Exist Freely. But Smokey Robinson wrote some of the greatest love songs you ever want to hear. And so did many, but we didn't hear that at that point. And actually, Roy became prominent after the rebellion because finally people in Newark found out. I didn't even know who he was. I didn't know this was the Leroy Jones. I knew he was a playwright because Ben had told me, but I had no idea. As to, I didn't know he had won the Obie Award for Dutchman. I had never seen Dutchman. None of this had happened yet. Um, but after the rebellion, when his picture, you know, showed up with the blood and, and all of that, then people began to realize who he really was, and so did he. And he began to take on the politics of Newark. Because if, as, as you can recall, the Black Power Conference took place shortly after the rebellion in Newark. And they and this famous picture they have a rap and everybody's sitting at that was in the basement of our house. Not the basement, the first floor of our house at 33 Sterling Street. And uh, everybody was there. Everybody was there. And he began to see his responsibility not only as a writer, but as a person who how culture could influence politics. And from then on it's history. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what, what caused that transition from the art stuff into actually social activism? And how did that nationalism 
spill over into the socialist movement? Well, in my opinion, it was after the rebellion. Because, you know, it's like uh, something happens in your life and it changes your whole point of view. And he became much more active in black nationalism than he had been. Because uh, when he was in New York, you know, they had the uh, black arts thing that only lasted, you would let, if history was to tell, it, it was forever. But it didn't last no more than, I would say, nine months. And then when he came to Newark, it's when at the Spirit House, and I have a document that he wrote about that, uh, that art became part of a political question. And then from the black nationalist politics, and then you have to know this about us. We came from two very different backgrounds. I came from labor organizers and labor. And he came from a middle-class family whose mother was a great activist that nobody talks about anymore, Anna Lois Jones. And his sister, Elaine Jones, who was also murdered, by the way, uh, was a dancer and in theater. But anyway, this clash between he and I and me feeling that uh, that I didn't think that the working class people were being uh, represented. And you, they always made you feel like you didn't have a degree and you had not you had no college that you could say you graduated from, and neither did he, by the way, because he, uh, he left Howard and uh, then joined armed forces and got thrown out of that, and that is in his autobiography. But this is when I began, not clearly, but as my grandmother would say, something told me that something's wrong here. And we always, even though in um, Sterling Street, it reminds me of Gloria Naylor's uh, book, Women of Bruce, this because it was a one, drop, uh, one block street and was mostly working class women and, it, uh, and children. And he started working with them and doing, uh, opening up uh, classes for them. They put out a newspaper called the Sterling Street News and uh, the parents, the women were so grateful that he was taking this opportunity to work with the young kids in that neighborhood. And they were too, they had never left the neighborhood. They went to New York for the first time and the do to that. But uh, the details of this story would take too much long for a camera. But the points that I really want you to know is that he and I, were almost perfect to become black radicals because I came from the working class, he came from the middle class, and I mean the middle. And uh, we would have, at first it was easy, and I, thought, I think I was a relief for him because he had been attacked when he moved from downtown, uptown, by uh, the nationalists who was criticized about having been married to a white woman and down there with the beatniks and the white people say, I never had that experience. I was straight ahead in Newark, in the uh, music and, uh, you know, art of uh, Newark and some of the politics, because I joined this group called VIC, Voters Information Council, even though they were uh, college graduates, but they were, you know, doing with voter registration. Okay, I left him for a little while when I got with him and was back and forth. But it was almost perfect in the sense that 
we it was like a right hand and a left hand. If it wasn't for both of our hands, I don't think either one of us would got where we were. And we would have sometimes really serious, almost violent discussions about this stuff. But neither one of us would, oh, that's that song, neither one of us wanted to be the first to say goodbye. <laughs> so sometimes I won. I think most times I did. Most times I did. Because he was really seriously trying to throw off what even I agreed with was not a... Uh, was not serious. This was the era they were going to go through it and when they got finished. And he used to say this, when they get finished with this, they're going to go back to their father's corporations and whatever they had and make money. And we were not because we, we didn't come from that place. So I think we uh, finally came to uh, that conclusion and that's what radicalized him, I believe, because then he had to deal with the fact that the children he had been dealing with on Sterling Street, their parents did not, uh, were not middle class. Those children were, no, were not going to be able to go to anybody's college. And most of them did not, by the way. If they, and some of them made their way, but they made their way through um, small business and such as that. But they were very intelligent because we made sure there was always books. We made sure their mothers and what fathers were around, but it was mostly women, uh, they, like this house, we started collecting. And I began to understand that every piece of literature we put our hands on, every painting, and people gave us a lot. I mean, other artists gave us a lot. And I began to pack them in a box. I couldn't get them framed. I didn't know what I was, we wasn't in a big house like this one. But as time went on, you know, we were together 50 years, 50 years. I began, when he started to become more and more important and people started to pay him for his work, which they was not doing, and I wouldn't get paid for nothing, but I had the good sense to keep these things, and I kept them. And so when he became a person that both classes began to respect. And most of all, he began to stand up for those that do not have. But I think the thing that brought us together was the music. The music and art, because I'm an artist. I'm a painter and a singer and a dancer and an actress. And I think that's what brought us together, the arts. The politics came as we grew. And there's been a lot of tragedy in, our, in both of our lives, in our, in our particular family. And uh, like in The Color Purple, the woman said, God's trying to tell you something. And I'm beginning to believe that it, it was. I want to ask you uh, about the women uh, and their role in the black radical tradition, uh, mainly an organization that you were part of, the, uh, the Black Women's United Front. If you could talk about some of the philosophy of its organization and, and some of its aims. Yes, that's when I was beginning to get clear, during the African liberation struggles. When I was reading stuff about uh, Winnie Mandela in, you know, South Africa, uh, we were reading about the women in China. We were reading, I still got the books. We've been reading uh, Zimbabwe, Angola, and so forth. I said, hey. And so it started to influence my philosophy. 
So I asked him, which is what you had to do at that time, I asked him if we could put together the Black Women's United Front, and we did. And we had women from uh, the Caribbean, from Canada, who was the New Jewel Movement, from Angola, from Mozambique, from, I mean, just everybody we could find. And he had the contacts, and all he had to do was to give us the contacts. And we had the, uh, a conference here in Newark called the Black Women's United Front. Then, because of us being with these black, African, Latino, Caribbean women, Canadian from all over the world, coming together, we were learning things. It was like school. We were learning things. And, and the more we learned, the more we did. Because then I started getting uh, hooked up with, uh, not hooked up, but going to conferences and meetings. We did, not just me. Because um, some of the people left. When we moved to the left, our organization, the Congress of African People, almost split versus split in half. And then it split, split, split. There wasn't but a few of us left because they did not want to hear uh, anything about Marxism, Leninism, or anything, Trotskyism, or anything. They didn't want to hear it. But one thing that's important I need to tell you, during the Newark Rebellion, this is the first time I met May Mallory. They had blocked off, I told you it was one block street, right? They had blocked the street off and uh, police barricades were there. There was, they shut down, uh, the stores were closed, you know what they do, and you couldn't get anything. And I had my two daughters with me by my first marriage. And his, their father wanted his daughters out of there, and I understood it. Barbara uh, uh, Killens was there, John Oliver Killens' daughter. She was just on a panel with me this year uh, on the, a rebellion, because she was there when it happened, a, a woman named uh, Nettie was there, and Obalaji was about seven weeks old. When we ran out looking for him, I know I'm all over the place, but maybe somebody will put it together. Um, we began to understand, at least some of us, but the women, you know, we were, uh, we were still in the Yoruba, not the most, uh, the most backward elements of African culture. You know, we was bowing down, crossing our arms, uh, appreciating what's been said, if I have said anything of value or beauty or praises due to Imamu Baraka and all mistakes of mine. Now that came under Karinga's influence because I, I couldn't get to tell you about when he started hanging out with the US organization because that's a whole nother chapter. And with, the more we knew, like they said, the more you know, the more you know. And we moved with, to the black uh, Women's United Front, and I think that's when we start talking to women. I can remember one woman's name, uh, Tasahi. She was Ethiopian. After the conference, and we were talking, you know, lunch period and so forth, and she said to me, why are y'all dressed up in all this African garb? She said, we only wear that when we going out into the fields and doing and do, doing, you know, like work in, uh, among the peasants. And, I, and I, I, I let it go, I let it go. And I was being criticized, oh my God, by all these women who came out, the African liberation movements who was on the left. I felt like an idiot. 
And so I, I tried to talk to him about it. He listened because he was, a, he was an intellectual. Now the women that we had organized and was with us, a lot of them were only interested in either being a singer, a dancer, or something like that, or even electoral politics. We hadn't even uh, got to that yet, because you remember it wasn't until the 70s that Kenneth Gibson was elected to office. You know he had run before. Uh, it's, it's, uh, if I could finally get myself together to tell it in chronological order, I think it would be better understood. But I must tell some of this before I die. It's that uh, the influence of those who know and those who mean well, like my grandmother said, good intentions can pave the way to hell. And our intentions were very good, but it was paving the way to hell. And the more we got around leftists and people like that, I just couldn't take it anymore. And it was only a few women that understood it. Because what's interesting, it's only a few of us who moved to the left. It was only a few of us. The rest of them left like the men left too. They left too. But trying to put that conference together was the most difficult thing in my heart that I had to do. And I was learning as I, as I went. And we didn't have time to sit down and study the way we later on, at least the way I later on could do. And uh, then there was conflict in the house. But, you know, it was interesting because he wasn't, he wasn't against it because it reminded him of some of the stuff he was dealing with when he was in Greenwich Village. But it wasn't black enough. And that's, you know, how you're going to be black enough. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how you're going to be American enough with this uh, fascist uh, movement. And it, was, uh, it wasn't easy. And I am not, I am complaining. Yeah, I am. I start saying I'm not complaining. But I am. And I'm only complaining for one reason, is that when you really, when you're really serious about something, you have to look at both sides and make a side. That's what I'm asking the Republican Party to do. Take a side. You're either with Trump or you're without him. If, you, if you're not with him, expel him from your party. I know they must have some type of rules in the Republican Party. And I ain't talking about the Republican Party of Lincoln because Lincoln is turning over his grave. And so is um, Nat Turner and John Brown. John Brown didn't want to be a master. Nat Turner wasn't going to be a slave. Hey, that's a great union. That's a great union. But they killed all three. And we're in the era, excuse me for dry, because I can't get, uh, this man is about to uh, destroy me. This man, we in an era of fascism. The Republican Party, and they're talking about they the party of Lincoln. I said, oh, he's turning over on his, in his grave. Come on, give me a break. And, uh, and he is. This is not that this is uh, we're in an era of fascism. Have you seen these Republicans trying to justify? And I saw a Negro. Uh, what is his name? I said I was going to remember his name. It's uh, Bernard. Uh, Bernard this is his last name. Oh, this character is a horrible person. But anyway, you either only thing we can do right now. 
The Republican Party has to denounce uh, Trump, throw himself out, throw him out. I'm with Maxine Waters, throw him out. Otherwise, my position is wherever somebody comes up on that thing, say Republican, don't vote, don't vote, don't vote, don't vote. Although Hillary and he are the same. No, they're not. No, they're not. That's like somebody with a gun and the other one with a knife. I'm a, uh, the one with the gun is more dangerous. I'll deal with the knife later. Uh-uh. No, this is not working. This is... I, I want to ask you, uh, speaking of current politics, uh, um, what, would, what would your message be to the next generation of uh, radical activists that sort of wish to pick up the struggle where you left off? What would, what would be your words of encouragement or what would be sort of your advice to them? My advice is to follow science. You know, the penny drops every time, you, every time it falls. Science, I, I would suggest, they don't have to become a Marxist. I would suggest, just like they do with the environment or anything else, study the science of revolution. Study Sun Tzu. Study, if you want to really change the world, don't go in there disarmed. Go in there with an ideological stance and the perseverance to carry it out and the courage, the courage to stand up when you know this, like the uh, freedom ain't free, and I don't mean money. Freedom ain't free. It's like going to school. If you want to, like generals and everybody else, you have to learn how to make a revolution. Demonstrating and then screaming about stuff, that's good. I'm glad. I did it too. I did it too and we'll do it tonight. Again, I was doing it today. But at least, at least have a program. At least understand that, like you could need a driver's license. You know, you have to, you could, you know, you have to go to driver's school or you got to read the driver's man. You need a driver's license for revolution. You have got to study. It can't just be emotional. It just can't be what you know it's wrong. Yeah, I know it's wrong, but find out how to fix it. Find out how to fix it. And, and there's uh, lots of information, but then again, I'll tell you what, they have a good trick. They give you, they work you to death so you don't have time to study. I don't care what we did back in the day. We'd be falling asleep with babies falling around, taking them to bed. But I don't care. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that some of us decided we would take the chance. We would take the chance. Look at all our comrades. They're either dead or in jail. All these people, I'll be 75 in December. All of my friends, all, they're, they're dead, including my husband, or they're in jail. And a few people, that are alive, we so separated based on the lives that we have to live to survive. And then when we do get together, it's only for a moment. It's only for a moment. Please, young people, take some, it's not time out. You know, when you're driving somewhere, whoever the driver is, let them drive and you read and, talk, and read it to them. That's what we used to do. We would read, we would read, because the women, what we did, we had a study group. Even when we had a 24-hour daycare center, we had a 24-hour daycare only for the sisters in the organization. There was a time when the kids were put to sleep, they were supposed to read to each other and discuss it. Even we had a, a dining hall. It was always 
If you knew, you told them. And we didn't want to discuss nothing else but how to get out of this mess. And it worked. It worked for some of us. Now, I ain't going to lie. It didn't work for a lot. But some of us, it worked. It worked. And it worked for our children because the children that grew up in that nursery, they're part of Mayor Baraka's administration right now. Right now. I look up there and they say, oh, Miss Baraka, did you not say, yeah, he grew up in the nursery. He grew up in African free school. She grew up in the nursery. She grew up. But the other ones, academics, I hate to say this, academia is not enough. Revolution is another uh, course. It's another course. You got to learn how to win. Mao Zedong said, no investigation, no right to speak. You have got to do it. And it's about them killed all of us in this sense. I look and I think about those brothers in the Panthers and the BLM put their lives out there and then now they all in, in the jail and they all are dying in the jail and everybody's trying to get them medical attention uh, without a tell or something. That ought to tell, don't let our children do it. Yes, they did the right thing, but the only thing they didn't do was deal with the science of revolution like a military. When you join the armed forces, there's something you have to do. You have to go into military training. There's things you have to learn. And if you're not willing to learn you learn it, you know what? You don't get in there. They'll throw your ass out. And I suggest the Republican Party throw uh, Trump out. But they're not going to do it. If they do it, it'll be a surprise to me. Uh, I want to ask you so, sort of uh, um, go back into the, the education stuff that you are part of. You developed uh, a version of the alphabet where you matched each letter of the word and associated it to Black Revolution. I don't know, never necessarily know if you remember it, but uh, could you share like how that came about and talk about it a little bit? It's the same thing that I was just telling you that the alphabet, you know, A, B, C, well, you know, the first word was A was Africa, B was Black. <laughs> I can't remember what C was at all, because, I mean, we were in a state of mind then. And when I looked back at it, uh, one of the sisters in the organization brought me a copy of the book, and I said, yeah, we had some of it right, but a lot was wrong. <laughs> but, um, and then we have to understand this is the United States of America. Recently, I hear people calling Trump 45. I said, what the hell is a 45? I sound like liquor. They said, well, no. I said, face it. He is the president of the United States of America. When you finally come to that, you'll know what you have to do. Oh, of course everybody is ashamed. I'm, I'm not ashamed. I'm outraged. And left to me, he wouldn't have been there. He wouldn't have been. We'd have been fighting Hillary right along now if it left to me. Because I knew Bernie was going to have to do that. I knew it. Okay. Now, we have to deal with what it is. We're this is a fascist climate, a fascist climate. It's not just Trump. He's got all these people, uh, Republicans, uh, justifying what he did, even though they claim they're criticized. Oh, no, they're not. No, they're not. We saw them, the opportunists, the pimps, who just wanted to get elected to office. They help. And guess what? The people voted for who? Hillary. The Electoral College voted for Trump. 
The she won the popular vote. Don't ever forget that the people did not want him. We are not stupid. People kind of know when somebody's knocking at their door that don't belong there. And they didn't vote for him. So we got to do something about that electoral college. I've been asking people to study uh, Du Bois's uh, Black Reconstruction and anything else you can get your hands on that tells you how the electoral college uh, came into being and its, and its use, and its use for this climate. This is not the first time. Didn't what's his name? Gore won the popular vote too? So when are we gonna do something? Get rid of that thing. That thing is no good. It's not, it's, it, it, it doesn't represent any of us. And the United States of America is what it is. Black people, African-Americans, we didn't come looking for work. We came shackled. We came covered with blankets of blood. We came trying to go back home. We hid chariots in our songs. We said, why don't you swing down, sweet chariot, stop and let us ride. And we know we were, it was cold. We know what we was doing. We knew, like the ship Jesus. Come on now. God helps those who help themselves. We know what that was. Now, the whole question of the Native American. Ah, my grandmother said, be careful. Anybody rape your mother and steal your father's land, they ain't your friend. And there it is. I want to ask you uh, one more question, unless uh, Brother Mogadishu has something to follow up. Uh, I want you to sort of talk about uh, the contemporary artists, um, people like Maya Angelou and Dr. Sonia Sanchez. How do you see like you guys yourselves sort of in, in, in this movement? And uh, if you could look back and say, like, what do, you, what do you think that you guys have sort of given to this movement that, uh, that people can come along and be like, all right, they got this right, and we'll pick up the baton and like carry it on in the literary, uh, I guess in the literary Well, literary. well uh, Dr. Maya is dead. And what she left, uh, my favorite piece of hers is The Heart of a Woman. Because I remember in the 60s when Maya was married to a non-African person, she was very much attacked. Because that, that, that got in it too, that got in it too, of who you was married to. Uh, and it's almost like questioning who was your slave master. And then, um, and then the Native American question, uh, well, you know, black people always want to say they're Indians. Well, let me tell you something. I am part Cherokee. And let me tell you something. I don't care. I don't care. You better not. Well, I ain't going to cuss. You, uh-uh. It's nothing wrong with it. Look, like I said, I, I don't know. I know how we got here. They came here and stole. And guess what? The Union won the war. The Union won the war. Come on now. You're not going to take that back. The Union won the war. And now, and guess, and we had to fight to even fight that. You remember the, the, the uh, was segregated? The armed forces were segregated. You let black people fight for their own goddamn lives? Oh, well, let's change that. Well, they did change it. They did. And now we got to do it again. So in terms of writers and so forth, write that. Write that. Write about how we got here. Write that. Um, well, I'm going to tell you, my favorite part, Sonia, I met Sonia uh, right after I met Amity, and she was always a good friend. And uh, 
we was out in San Francisco together about the earlier things I was talking about. But um, you can't stop. Like uh, Dr. King said, we can't wait. Jane Cortez is, uh, I got to know Jane much later. Jane Cortez is one of my favorite poets. And I tend to side with the younger poets, Tony K. Bambara and those women. I really do. I really do. Because me and Sonia had a hard time. <laughs> we, not, not, I just said a hard time. I mean, we were good friends, meaning women like Sonia and me. We had a hard time because we knew something and was trying to do something when uh, we couldn't get any male support. And she helped me out a lot, and I helped her out a lot. So I think Sonia, like me, will be happy to give credit where credit is due that we, Sonia helped uh, create, Sonia created a space for the young women that was coming after her. And she, and it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. She had a very difficult time, but she refused to, uh, and Mari Evans is like that. She refused to surrender. And thank you, Sonia. So, so in the tradition of the blues woman and the radical woman, um, do you have a piece, maybe you could give us a piece of yours that speaks to that, that poem. you can include in this piece of, uh, maybe a poem or a phrase or something that you did that speaks to that tradition? Well, I have a poem, but I don't feel like going upstairs. A CD or something that you're producing, maybe you could talk yeah. about that. You know. But I tell you, uh, I tell you what I can do that I can remember. Them that's got your gifts, them that's not your lose. So the Bible says, but it still is news. Mama may have, and Papa may have, but God bless the child that's got her own, that's got her own. Yes, the rich get more, while the poor ones fail. Empty pockets don't ever make the grade your mama may have and your papa may have. But God bless the child that's got her own, that's got her own. That's a Billy song. All right. Thank you. <laughs>